And my epiphany was that through all my education, undergrad and graduate, the, the underlying factor is loss of habitat. So for me, I remember that morning thinking to myself, wow, it'd be so cool if there was a, a job out there that you could actually keep habitat from being lost. And that was sort of the early underpants. I did not know what a conservancy was at that point. Welcome to the Saul Good Podcast, a podcast that explores the nature of human experience. Each week, I have a new guest on the show, and we talk about what drives them. What is it that's gravitating them towards their passions and their work? I'm your host, Solomon Harvey, and I'm super excited about today's guest, Kieran Fleming, who is the executive director of the Little Traverse Conservancy here in Northern Michigan. I wanted to interview Kieran because I was recently hired as a seasonal stewardship technician. And the more I've learned about what a nature conservancy does, especially the Little Traverse Conservancy, the more I've begun to appreciate the work that we're doing. We don't really get a second chance at saving our environment. And as my dad said in a previous episode, we have to be good stewards of our natural resources. We don't want them being taken advantage of. There are several wings to the Little Traverse Conservancy, and today I wanted to take you guys on the inside to learn about what a conservancy does. To kick off the episode, Kieran, how would you like to introduce yourself? Well, uh, you know, I've been around for a while here in many different roles. I'm a Wisconsin boy that grew up hunting and fishing and camping, and you know, I was in love with the outdoors from my very first memories. In fact, I can remember, I was thinking about that on the way over here. It's like I remember uh, my brothers and I living in the woods. I mean, we had a big bell on our back balcony that my mom would, um, the, the rule was you could go wherever you wanted, but you had to be within earshot of that bell. And it was a loud bell. For dinner. Yeah, yeah. For, for whatever. Or, or dark, after dark. And you had to be able to, she would expect you back within 20 minutes of ringing that bell. So um, we just spent so much time outside and um, so that's how I came to it. And what is your title currently? It's the executive director. Okay. I, I started here as a stewardship specialist and as the organization evolved with opportunities, I sort of moved around where the need was the greatest and, you know, eventually found my way to this, this opportunity as executive director. So my background here is, you know, starting down at the roots of whatever, a lot of people that come into the organization um, that's their first job, so I feel I feel good about that. And then having played roles, leading several of the departments, and um, just being around for the years, you know. You have a pretty well-rounded understanding of each department. I'd like to think so. Yeah. 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 The education department is probably my least, you know, the one I'm the least familiar with, but I've learned a lot about that, and we have great people in charge there, so I feel good about that, but learn more every day. Yeah. Before we dive into each of the departments, mm-hmm. um, could you kind of explain what the Little Traverse Conservancy is to somebody that um, has never heard of sure. that? And and kind of broader, what is a conservancy in general? Sure. So conservancies are typically, when you think of them, they're defined as private nonprofits. So your money or whatever you gift to them is tax deductible as a nonprofit. The primary mission of land conservancies is to protect land. Protect is sort of in quotes there because that may mean different things to different people. We'll talk about that in a second. That's the primary part of our mission is land conservation and protecting land from development. And we do that through various uh, avenues. And so I remember in grad school, 
um, wondering what I wanted to do with my life. And I was doing some really cool research projects. And I remember thinking to myself at one point, it hit me, it was a seven o'clock in the morning. I was radio tracking elk in Wisconsin that were reintroduced to Wisconsin from here in northern Michigan. Radio tracking? What is that? Yeah, radio. the elk had radio collars on them. And oh, so right. the, the vehicle I was in had the little beepy equipment oh, okay. to pick it up. And, but anyway, I was sitting there having this epiphany that how awesome it was. You know, I, I love wildlife. I love hands-on wildlife. Um, I love looking at wildlife. I love hunting wildlife. But I had this epiphany that, you know, we're learning and trying to learn what, you know, what type of habitats the elk use or this or that uses or how we can, you know, reduce nest predation on ducks and things like that. And my epiphany was that through all my education, undergrad and graduate, that the, the underlying factor is loss of habitat. So for me, I remember that morning thinking to myself, wow, it'd be so cool if there was a, a job out there that you could actually keep habitat from being lost. And that was sort of the early underpants. I did not know what a conservancy was at that point either. I was just a couple years away from knowing it, though. But so uh, the land, land conservancies, and they can be, you know, we're a local land trust. We serve five counties in northern Michigan, but they could be statewide. They could be nationwide. They, you know, the, the Nature Conservancy is a land conservancy, and they're international. You know, so it can operate on different levels. Do you operate then underneath another one that is that a statewide or no we're, we're all independent okay. you know so we all have our own you know sort of narrower set of objectives so for example where the nature conservancy uh, might hone in on the the last of a certain habitat type or you know endangered species you know we're more apt to hone in on property that means more to our community whether it be because of ecological reasons or maybe more often because it's scenic or yeah. provides recreation opportunities. So our, our reason for wanting to conserve certain types of land is different, but the tools are the same. Okay. You know, they're very similar. And so we will partner with other organizations as, as appropriate and when, when there's synergy, but otherwise we, we all function sort of autonomously. So you have this aha moment and then what are some of the sort of key steps that brought you here to this to this place well my, my wife who i had just married that summer that i had the epiphany uh was an intern at little traverse conservancy in like 1988 or something like okay. that and so after that summer working on the elk and we'd been married and we were getting ready i was actually going to pursue a phd and she had sent her resume out to a couple land conservancies up in the north just because we were actually going to head off to south america for of all places and i woke up one morning and i said to myself you know i i really never wanted to be a phd I, I had an opportunity a really cool opportunity and it was sexy and all that stuff but it's like it hit me i'm like why am i i'm doing this for the wrong reasons and so i shared that with ann and on that that day she had gotten a call from glenn chown down at grand traverse regional land conservancy he said hey we might have a job for you so it was one of those stars aligned type moments one thing led to another That's yeah incredible. so we moved off to michigan and that was my first exposure to a conservancy that was before i did not even know that this epiphany that i had had earlier that summer uh, had actually an outlet for it so um, that was pretty cool i thought and uh, we were down there for a few years, and then when an opportunity came up here, we moved. Uh, this is Ann's hometown, so. Nice. Well, diving into the specifics of the work that a conservancy does, one thing that I, I saw as a 
frequently asked question and one that popped up in my own curiosity, it's thrown around a lot, is land trust. Mm -hmm. Could you break that down a little bit for us? Yeah, you know, land trust is just another way of saying conservancy. Okay. They're, they're interchangeable. They mean the same thing. Um, I think land trust is born from the, the fact that it could be considered that we hold land in trust for the public. Okay. So those are inter interchangeable words, land okay. trust and conservancy. That makes sense. Yeah. And then um, I guess to go in a little bit further into the each department, could you elaborate yeah. on those a little bit more? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, as I said before, the land conservation is the primary part of the mission. So, you know, we have uh, two full-time staff that, that they're, their job is to go out and you know find opportunities to conserve lands that would meet our criteria and our priority. So whether that means we own the land as a nature preserve or a working forest reserve, or whether that means we do a partnership, you know, a lot of times we'll help the state acquire lands that are important to their forest system, for example, or local units of government um, acquire recreation type lands. But I think the underlying secret is we actually protect more land more acres through conservation easements than the other the other ways. So I think that's kind of a cool thing. Conservation easements are a permanent restriction on property that protects the property from certain things like development or division um, that might harm the conservation values of the property. This is a good way to protect farms, scenic views, places where we don't want to own all the property. You know, we don't want to own all the property. Um, but it, so it can stay in private ownership, but per permanently protected. So that's a that's a tool that we use even after the people move or yeah yeah it runs with the land so okay. so conservation easements are permanent they have tax consequences they're um, they're kind of complicated but they are a wonderful tool you know landowners um, who do conservation easements are really trying to protect their land like some people don't look at their land that way that's fair you know if you if you want to develop your land you know, there's all kind of avenues for you to walk in and get help to do whatever it is you want to develop. You know, you could go into a township and figure out how to split it. Uh, you could get help, you know, on what permits you would need to develop. What we do for landowners who want their land to always stay natural is we provide an option for them. And so it's a great thing. And it means, you know, land, family, and God are the three things people usually value most. And it's, you never really know which order it's in with, with uh, people and landowners, I find, you know, have a high affinity for their property. Yeah. And I had no idea the offerings that, that Little Travers Conservancy currently has. How many uh, nature preserves? It's it's over, it's almost 300. <laughs> and yeah. this has been over the process of how many... Well, we were founded in 1972 and, you know, it was sort of slow going for a while. And then as our capacity increased, you know, we, we usually only or started out only accepting donated land. Okay. And then as our capacity increased and our support from the community in the form of money and membership, um, we were able to buy lands that we valued. And so, you know, we've been in an era where we do that frequently. One thing I was I was researching on the website, trying to educate myself now that I work for the conservancy, if I'm out in the field um, doing invasive species removal. One of the things that I read is one thing we don't do is we don't you know take sides. It's not that we're saying not to develop. We're just saying mm -hmm. you know steering clear of these diverse areas where this could actually cause a pretty big detriment to our natural resources if someone comes in and just develops it and to see these structures in place that is protecting the land long into the future is just such an exciting it's 
you know, we're saving the world. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. We're, we're saving our corner of it. Right. That, that's the goal, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, if everybody does that, the world will be saved. You know, your, your observation stems from our, our um, when we were founded, our, our, the founding fathers, the seven founders of the Conservancy back in 1972. The way that they they organized is they were fighting a, a lawsuit on a, on a wetland development project just not far from where we're sitting. And it was one of these things, you know, it's a legal battle, lawsuit goes back and forth. Both sides are just spending money left, right, and sideways. And they, they just had this, after it was done, they said, you know, there's got to be a better way. And so the, the core principle that holds very strong and very true to this day are we work with voluntary, you know, landowners who voluntarily want to work with us, whether they're donating land or donating a conservation easement or whether we're buying it in a fair market transaction. We're working with people only that want to work with us. We don't operate through advocacy and, and through, you know, you'll never see us in a township meeting saying that, you know, zoning, for example, should uh, impinge somebody's right to develop their property in any way. There's other organizations that can do that. And, you know, that's great. Good for them. We need them. You know, that doesn't mean advocacy is bad, but we don't do that. And we focus on working with people who want to work with us. And we don't, <clears throat> there is no litmus test for whether their intentions are good or bad, or they made their money in, you know, this industry or that, you know, I really love that sort of visual of, you know, we have a big tent this land conservation is a big tent and if we let anybody come stand under it that wants to help us you know move it forward we will be successful and that's been true and so that that is to this day you know and i used to not agree with that i remember coming here 18 years ago 19 years ago and thinking to myself you know people ask us to weigh in on things all the time and i remember thinking to myself well the Conservancy is a pretty strong community rooted organization. We, we should speak up. I mean, our voice is significant. And I've completely changed my mind on that because I have seen us work with people who had we taken a position on something, they wouldn't let us in their in their kitchen, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, and I've seen that a lot. And so, again, if we can philosophically set aside our ideals on political issues or whatever, we don't all have to have, you know, I, I like land conservation because I like wildlife. Now, I know people who, you know, that work in this office that won't go out in the woods because they don't like ticks, right. but they want to drive by a beautiful scenery every day. So we can all have different reasons. Mm -hmm. But in the end, if we, you know, we work together, we're really trying to achieve the same thing. So that's that's where we're going. That's where we've been going, you know? Yeah. I see what you're saying, though. And that's something I've battled with on the podcast is, as soon as you start picking sides, you kind of close off of an audience. And I think that, like you said, people come at it from all these different angles. And one of yours being hunting, you know, mm -hmm. and right. I was kind of curious, how has hunting played into land conservation? Well, I mean, especially for Michigan. I yeah, I mean, you know, hunt, hunting is, a, um, <laughs> you know, hunters consider themselves the original conservationists. You know, if you if you go back uh, in time and, you know, the Theodore Roosevelt's and, and that type of thing. It's taken its turn. Our social economics, you know, of our country has gone different ways. But up here in northern Michigan, it's still a um, important pastime for a lot of the folks who are just, you know, the average folks that live here and try and make an honest living, you know. And so it's one of the public benefits that we provide. And I suspect that's tough for some people to stomach. You know, logging is another issue. You know, that was another one where we hadn't done it for years and, and um, you know, there, there's a perception out there. 
But again, these are places where I think tolerance and open-mindedness carry the day. You know, if, if we're willing to believe that, you know, someone like me doesn't have to fit every stereotype some people may have for hunters, you know, and we can still be contributing to the same cause, you know, that's, it's a, it's a teaching moment. And the same with the forestry stuff, you know, we, we took a little bit of heat when we began uh, increasing our forest management activities. But I've been very impressed with the open-mindedness of people um, to logic and to understand that we do have a plan. And But your observation is absolutely right. The the And this is worse now than it was when I was your age, but it was still sort of true. And that is, you know, if, if we, we, we look in at this world politically as left or right, there's so little middle ground anymore. And too often politically, um, if you're right on issue A and or B, you automatically adopt being right on D, E, F, G, and all the way down to Z. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if you're on the left and you oppose A or B, you automatically oppose the rest. And it, there's just, it's like we've lost the opportunity for any meaningful dialogue. But I think under this tent of the conservancy, we can have some of those conversations, mm -hmm. you know, and um, we don't have to have them in a political format. We can have them in a how are we going to, you know, we'll all agree on certain things, you know, let's just, I'm not insinuating you're not pro hunting or anti hunting or anything, but let's just say you're anti hunting and you and I are looking at a beautiful woods. We can both agree that we want the beautiful woods to say, maybe I want to get, get lunch out of there and maybe you just want to drive by and see a beautiful woods, but we can stand together for that. You know, I think that's a, a good observation and a chance for us to come together when it seems like we're just pulled apart left, right and sideways. You know? Yeah. Well, I had uh, a concerned citizen walking his dog the other day asking about, you know, is this a, is this open to hunting? And I didn't realize that it was, mm -hmm. it was the Offield Preserve. Sure. And um, people don't have anything to worry about, I'm sure, but I, I didn't know. Um, yeah, what, sure. Yeah. Well, it's a common problem. Uh, I, nope, I said it the wrong way. It's not a problem. It's a misconception that those two uses, walking your dog and being able to hunt a piece of property, aren't compatible. Number one, hunters are usually there in the twilight hours or the beginning or the end of the day when most people are not. Number two, most hunters don't want to be anywhere near where you're walking your dog. <laughs> you know, they right. just really That's don't. Yeah. And so, you know, the off-field is a big enough piece of property that I guarantee you they're not sitting very close to that trail at all. That's true. And so they're seemingly conflicting uses that find uh, resolution on their own. I mean, we've really never had a problem. I've never had somebody say, hey, I saw somebody walking out of there with a gun and it made me nervous. I have seen people walk out of there with a gun and I don't think we've had, you know, it just goes to show, I think it can work. So it's, yeah, it can be shared. Absolutely. And, and, you know, hunters need to, they need to act responsibly. I mean, mm -hmm. both in uh, how they are being and how they are being perceived. That is a charge as a hunter, I would, you know, make to our entire um, user group, you know? Yeah. But I think we've got a pretty good group around here. Well, so for Little Travers Conservancy, being run and now being able to purchase land like you said it was first donations and then being able to purchase land where do these where is the funding coming from well i think and i think it's different for each set of land is that totally you know, right totally yeah i mean it depends on the situation in a general sense the vast majority like 90 percent of our funding is private dollars that people donate now whether that's through a family foundation or you know just 
you know, people writing a check out of their normal checking account. But I like that. We do, we do get some public funding on occasion on a project by project basis. If, for example, we find a project that might meet a, um, a specific funding sources goals, you know, and it meets our goals, you know, sometimes we try to, to put those things together, but by and large, we, you know, now the reason why I like that so much is it goes back to that voluntary thing. You know, the, the more directly people give their money to a specific thing, the more voluntary that is, uh, the more it shows that community values what we're doing. And um, I think that's a beautiful thing. You know, I, I tend to be with people who want to argue that we shouldn't be taxing ourselves silly in the name of federal programs that do all these things. I, you know, I see the logic in that. Mm -hmm. And we'll use federal grants when we get a chance, you know, because that's also part of how we do it. But I would be fine if they went away. You know, I really would. And that is also through a membership, is that correct? Yeah, we have members. We have uh, about 4,000 members a year. And usually the, the, the membership dollars, those are people who are contributing a sum annual, every year. And that's our keep the lights on money. That's the pay the people and keep the lights on money typically. So that allows us to be here, be available, and be diligent on protecting what we promise to protect. Usually when we go into a specific land project, it's specific fundraising for that project. Okay. Yeah. Great. And then for people that, I don't know, I, I just imagine that there's some misconceptions that can arise in this line of work. And I'm just kind of curious what those, what those might be from the public or you have people coming in or is there not that much of them? Well, you know, I think the 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 world in our community are full of people who drive by our signs every day and probably really don't have an idea of what what's going on there and that's okay you know I, I don't pay that much attention when i'm driving either are you talking about the nature preserve signs? yeah the nature preserve and the working forest reserve signs you know we're all over the place you know you, you really can't go very far without seeing one and and i'm kind of once in a while i'm surprised how you know somebody might say oh i think i've seen your signs before and i'm like well i'm sure you have certainly it'd be nice if more people understood what we're doing to protect our way of life. I mean, I think in some respects, we represent the opportunity to not change up here, you know? Mm -hmm. and whenever something happens, people are get nervous around change. And, but we're, we're one of those opportunities to sort of keep things as, the same as we can in terms of just having, you know, the same beautiful country. You know, I go back to where I grew up, can't even recognize it anymore. It's, it's a totally different thing. It breaks my heart. I don't even want to go back there. I mean, that's a hard thing to say because I'm a, I'm a very much a homebody. But when I go see what happened to the countryside that I grew up in southeast Wisconsin, it really, I mean, I get a lump in my throat. It's what just, happened? Well, the, where I grew up was some of the most beautiful. It was the moraine area of southern Wisconsin. It was dairy farm country in the time that I was there. But by the time I was in college, it was changing quickly. It was also close enough to Milwaukee, Chicago, Racine, Kenosha that, you know, was developing very quickly. It's about an hour from Chicago and about 45 minutes from Milwaukee. But the suburbs were coming out. They were already on their march mm. out from, from those urban centers. And so now, it used to be when I was a kid, when I was 12 years old, the first year I could hunt, you could walk out my back door and pretty much just wherever you, you know, just wherever you wanted to go. Now, it was all private land, but that was a different era. There were big farms. But by the time I was gone from there, that was no longer the case. They were smaller parcels. They were, you know, private access. Access to public land was very limited. And then the development came, and it was just it happened very quickly. You know, even just driving down the road, you can't recognize it. You mm -hmm. know, 
and and the bigger parcels that remain are sort of uh, horse farms or something. There's no there's no dairy industry in the county anymore, and or very little. So I mean, it's just it just changed, you know. I remember my moment was I came home from college one year, and I was gonna go deer hunting the next morning. I came home for Thanksgiving, and so I got up early. I knew exactly where I was going to go on this fence line behind the woods, behind the house. And I got out there in the morning and not only was there a house right there, there was a dog in the kennel barking at me as I walked down the hill. And I'm like, how did that happen? Or <laughs> that fast? My my favorite hunting spot was gone, even though I never owned it. Wow. And so is that, I mean, is there a window for conservancies to get in and to thrive or... You know, for an example, like your hometown, could a conservancy even exist as it is now? Or should there have been one before? How, how does that work? Oh, it would have been a great if there was one before. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know how much they could have done anyway. You know, this is all about people valuing it. You know, we don't come. It's not like a conservancy comes in and just changes everything. Mm-hmm. People have to value it. We are simply a reflection of what people value. There is no way you roll into a community and tell them to do it differently or tell them to, you know, thou shalt support us because, you know, you don't want the, what's coming. It doesn't work like that. It, it really goes the other way. People have to value it and inspire it and, you know, contribute to it and, and back it, you know, and that's what we have here. You know, we're in a little bit of a, um, a great, you know, we're, we're in a great spot here for a, a variety of reasons. In northern Michigan. One is our resources are beautiful. Number two is our people that live here usually choose to leave, live here for a reason. And you know, you hear the view of the bay is half the pay type thing. I think that's true to a certain degree. And finally, we have a resort community and others that um, have the capacity and the desire to make sure that organizations like ours and Tip of the Mitt and others um, that are protecting this, you know, they're putting their money where their mouth is. And and so we are lucky up here. I mean, mm-hmm. not other. There's a lot of other conservancies in the state. I think there's some thirty some in the state, and not all of them have the luxury that we have to do this as well as we're doing it. And one of the things I heard from one of the volunteers that I that I worked with, I didn't realize that there were weekly volunteers that would come that come and yeah. help out. And what would you say to some volunteers that would like to get involved that don't? Uh, Come on over. Yeah, I mean, we have plenty of opportunities, whether you want to be outside, you know, working on trails or ecological type stuff or whether you want to help out in the office. You know, we got all kinds of opportunities. And it's a great observation on your part that without them, we we I don't know how we you know, you talk about all the properties that we we take care of and we and we facilitate access. That's an important emphasis of ours is we facilitate access. We want people to go use these things. But we want to do it so that we're protecting the property too. Mm-hmm. So that's where trails are important. But you know, we have 110 miles of trails. If th- there's no way to actually put a pen to paper and, d- and determine how much the several hundred volunteers that take care of those trails, and you can't translate that to how many staff people it would take because you know this is all throughout our service area. So it's testament to how people value us. I love that. It's 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 as good as people giving money because um, we get honest work done. Hopefully the volunteers are getting something out of it too. And uh, it shows support for the whole thing, you mm-hmm. know, which is important. Yeah. And I mean, you're building boardwalks, you're 
blazing trails. Uh, what other types of volunteer opportunities are there? Like you well, said, working in the office. And... Yeah, well, we have our Eco Stewards program right now is probably the, the coolest one. This is the one I would go after if yeah. I was in a position to volunteer my time on something like this. So that's where, you know, you can pick a thing, you know, like um, we have our Kestrel box program where we have Kestrel nesting boxes all throughout the, the preserves. And so we need volunteers that go and monitor them according to a protocol. And that data is then we, we not only store it for ourselves, but we also participate nationally with the uh, Peregrine Fund, who has been monitoring the decline, unfortunate decline of the American Kestrel. So that's a really cool thing. It culminates in a, um, we, we band them. We have a, a master bird bander who volunteers to help. And he, he uh, takes people with him. They go hold the chicks and wow. band them. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. That, that, that stuff gets me geeked, you know, and I, I would have loved opportunities like that. But all, there's all kinds like that. You know, we have invasive species monitoring. We have frog monitoring. We have all kinds of things. We have it set up so that you can kind of make your own, you know, if you want to. We, we want to learn more about what's on our properties. And so we welcome anybody who wants to do really anything that we have set up or what they want to do. You know? Very cool. Yeah, and it, it makes a huge difference. I mean, I, being with volunteers out in the field, just seeing how much more can happen, it's pretty incredible. It is. You know, the old adage, many hands make light work. But uh, we got... We have great volunteers all across the board. It seems like this conservancy in particular, too, attracts like a certain type of person. Like Everybody really cares. And I was so amazed when we all sat down and had lunch together. Oh. I can't think of any many other work environments where everybody's sitting down together <laughs> and, you know, everybody's saying hello in the morning and yeah. goodbye in the afternoon. And yeah. um, what... What do you look for in an employee or how do you feel about this work environment? Well, you know, the common denominator is passion for the job. And um, that you say that, that you've observed that, I couldn't be prouder of that, even though I have very little to do with that, but I couldn't be prouder to be associated with that. And that it bleeds over to our volunteer pool. I mean, I think that's pretty cool. You know, you, you've been out with John Baker probably and these people who, yeah. you know, you'd love to have them on staff too. Uh, but, you know, our, our work environment is purposeful we you know we we value um a toxic free environment in the sense that uh we got a, our crew as you've probably noticed the workload is enormous i mean all across our programs and so if we don't work together very well it's you know i mean that may be the most important thing you know but we're just really lucky right now we just got a really good crew and and um knock on wood we're going to keep every one of them and uh you know that's on that's by design we want it we want people to come whistling to work so. yeah and it seems like everybody's really passionate about the underlying mission whether that's a volunteer or staff member or people coming in and asking questions about it one question i had is if you keep doing what you're doing and things keep moving along at the, at the rate they are, where do you see Little Traverse Conservancy over the next 10, five to 10 years? Well, what are some hopes and dreams that you have for this? My goal, my hope is that we are able to, you know, the window for land conservation is ever shrinking. That doesn't mean it always goes away all the way, but you know, already the difference in the last 20 years in our opportunities is obvious. You know, it used to be you could work on 160 acre parcels a lot easier. Now it's, you know, you're hoping for 80s, you know, and stuff like that. And obviously as land values go up, this gets a little more complicated. You know, it's not as easy to do these things. I should point out that even though we have been able to buy land, 
you know, we have that capacity in certain situations. We still, donated land is still what carries the day. I mean, we still have mostly donations. So that's that makes me feel good too. But I, my hope is that it's about balance. You know, at its core, the Conservancy is about balance. We're, we don't want it to be that people can't find a job up here or find a place to live or whatever. That's not the goal. The goal is that when you do find a job and you get a place to live, that you have a high quality of life and your kids could and so forth. And your kids want to come back here. And so it is about balance. And I would argue that we've not been that successful that we're close to going over that balance yet. And so I think in the next 10 years, we try to get there as close as we can. And then after that, we're going to change a little bit. You know, our land conservation stuff is eventually, whether it's in 10 years or 50 years, is going to dwindle. Our stewardship role is going to go up because we're going to have more land under our wing. And, and hopefully by then our education program has expanded more too. So it'll change. It will. And for people that don't know the education side of it, what types of offerings do you currently have? Yeah, so because we're non-advocacy, because we don't take you know a, a role in that, but because we also want to give back to the communities in a way that promotes the outdoors, uh, our education program was born. And and the goal of it, the, the basic underlying goal. I mean, it's a great program. They get into technical things with schools and curriculums and making sure we're meeting all the requirements and this and that. But the bottom line at the end of the day is we want to get kids outside because, awesome. yeah, how, how are they supposed to someday make good decisions or appreciate their, what the consequence of their decisions would be towards the outdoors if they don't even really relate to it? And unfortunately, I, I really think this is a hard thing for me to even believe. You know, way up here in the north, outdoors everywhere. You know, what, what wouldn't you want to do outside? Yet kids don't interact with the outdoors the way I did when I was a kid. And even though the opportunity is there. So, so we make it so that those opportunities are right in front of them and easy. And that's the primary goal. I mean, without this stewardship position, I was on the computer eight hours a day working. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of become a standard in a lot of different positions, jobs, schooling, etc. And gosh, I can't tell you how much my life has changed just being outside eight hours mm -hmm. a day. And Your color some, is good. Yeah, getting some color on my skin. Yeah, getting some bruises and scratches. Yeah, it's and, healthy, man. It's yeah, healthy. it feels good. Yeah. good oxygen. And I would encourage the public if they haven't already to check out some of these preserves. Are are all of them? places you would encourage or are there some top five you know you know like we we have places that are more accessible depending on what level of access you want you know so you know the easiest way to do it is get on the website or, or get on our app and you know find out what's close to you and find out what has a parking area and a trail you know around petoskey here mccune is a great one um the goodhart farms is it's a little bit of a drive it's a great one but there's a lot of them close right in town even and some of them have trails, some of them don't. But um, you know, pick your pick your level. You know, I, I, uh, and just get out on them. There's there, they change you when you go out there. You know, and and we want. There's not one of them that's closed to the public. They are all open, and just mm -hmm. go have at it. And then what people will notice as they walk down the trail that the markings on the trees, and that is an indication of the working forest. Is that correct? Depends on what's going on at that right. moment. So I, I think you're probably referring to Offield again. Yeah. And that one has a uh, timber harvest coming up. So that's why the trees are marked. Um, sometimes they're marked to be taken. Sometimes they're marked not to be taken. So you have to be careful of that. But yeah. Yeah, I wanted to lead into that. Um, just 
to sort of explain to people what a working forest is. So instead of people coming in and just demolishing an environment, what is a working forest? So the difference is, we the reason why we call it something different is we want people to have a different expectation for our philosophy on it. You know, for years we've held nothing but nature preserves. And, you know, the preserve term is actually kind of technical. It means hands off for the most part. And that is our philosophy on those. And we own lots and lots of acres like that. But a while back in 2015, we were we were um, offered a gift of lots of 40 acre parcels throughout our service area, 1200 acres all told, with the with the requirement that we would sensibly and sustainably manage the forest on there. And it was an opportunity for us to say, well, would we walk away from protecting these properties or would we embrace the challenge and use it to demonstrate how you can do this well? And so we obviously took that. And so that's why you'll see the, the new working forest reserve sign is a little different color, but the logo is the same, but your management expectation is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So whenever we do forest management on one of those, it's, it's well thought out. A forester is consulted. Our objectives are clearly defined. A wildlife biologist comes in and oversees the whole thing. And we, we make all kinds of little adjustments depending on what the site calls for. And we routinely forsake dollars in the name of doing it right. And uh, and then there's a bid process and it goes out and trees are cut, you know. Mm -hmm. And and the important part of that is people have to understand that forest management, when done well, simply mimics the disturbance regime that would have been in place anyway. And I could show you that if we took a five-minute walk that way, where the wind came in and blew down, mm -hmm. you know, uh, an acre at a time. That looks like a clear cut. And um, now clear cuts are something that are really only appropriate to certain forest types uh, for, and depending on what your objectives are. Um, so most of the management you'll see is selective harvest and you know that type of thing, which mimics things like wind throw or disease or things like that, which happen you know naturally. So um, when done right, we're just using mother nature's re resiliency to move towards a healthier and more diverse forest. That's really cool. Yeah, mimicking what's already happening. Mm -hmm. um, to really nail the, the point home for people is what do we have to lose if we don't pursue conservation? Well, you could be like me and not want to go to your hometown again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty big thing. That is it, a big it, thing. it chokes me up just thinking about it. And that's what we have to lose. I mean, we do. We can make a decision whether we want to drive by more trees than driveways or at least have off-field working forest reserves or McCune uh, nature preserves that we can go to and escape very quickly and very easily. Mm -hmm. And so the more the better in that regard. And I don't know what it'll look like. I really don't know what the end is, but yeah. we'll just do our best to, to balance it out. It, it doesn't seem like there's much of going back, but there is... A chance to save it while it's here isn't that you know how awesome would it be if if we could have figured that out a long time ago you know yeah but um we're humans you know right and i mean i think that's one of the biggest reasons that i wanted to sit down with you and talk in the first place is that i personally didn't know anything about land conservation until about two or three weeks ago when i got the opportunity to work for the mm -hmm. conservancy and i don't think that it's necessarily a malicious you know, not caring, but it's just not an understanding of what right. we have and right. what we ha and our op our responsibility. Well, and that's where we need to do a better job because I I believe in my heart of hearts that people that live in northern Michigan, in this beautiful place, you know, you're not here. Most people are not here for the industrial opportunities. 
they're here because this place gives them some sort of sense of place or peace in their soul. I mean, I believe that. Now, whether you see that directly or not is a matter of when you have your own epiphany. And I think we can help with that a little bit more because I think that, you know, whether you like to hike the trails or just get off the iPad or um, get out and work a little bit or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. or just opening your eyes to the fact of what you're driving by. You know, my drive is a half hour in in the morning. Now, when I describe that to my friends from back home, that's like, oh, half hour. I'm like, no, man, I love the drive in because they're relating to the road rage of Chicago, you know, and it's like, no, you know, our drive in and from work can actually give us peace of mind. Well, that's a pretty big deal, man, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that I think, you know, we could make people help make people more aware of what we do really applies to all of us. So my, my curiosity with that is what is the extent to which the conservancy reaches out? Um, how far um, or is that growing or is there sort of a, a boundary line? Yeah. County line? Well, we, we do five counties and five I think counties. we're probably going to stick in that. You know, we've had some occasional in, uh, inquiries about, you know, bumping out into loose County up in the UP, for example. And we have done a little bit work in the other counties. Um, if it's relevant to what we're doing in our own County, but I think we stick in our own boundaries because that's, you know, the people who've been contributing to our endowment, for example, they want to know that we're, we're working here. You know, we don't want to grow per se. We just want to do better here. When I started this podcast, I had actually quit my job and was kind of asking people what drives them. What is it at the heart of what you're doing? And is it, is it monetary gain, which isn't a bad thing, but mm -hmm. I think that is a huge thing that's driving a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And when I look at this, the conservancy, and I see people out in the field and volunteering their time, it just seems like there's this bigger thing that's driving them, which is so much more fulfilling, you know, and if, if it is for monetary gain, it's to be donated to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I just think that's such a cool thing that it's not, it's not really to grow. It's not really to push any direction, but you're a reflection mm -hmm. of you know, what the community wants. And well, I think it's a really cool thing. That's a great observation because, you know, we've resisted the temptation to raise money for the sake of raising money. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's a problem too. I think people can say, well, if, you know, this is, if this is good, then more is better. And I don't, I don't really agree with that. You know, I guess they're at a line, it would be great to just be able to do more land and that type of thing. But that, you got to, I am always amazed when people write us a check. And it is interesting because, rich people in quotes, um, you know, sometimes get a bad rap, but you know, when somebody writes a check to us, meaning they value us above other things that they could write a check for, that's pretty darn important. That, that means as much. And then people who write a check who, you know, $10 is a, is a significant gift. And that fires me up mm -hmm. that in, energizes me in a big way. So that is what it's about. You know, we, we, we want to feel, we want something out of this. It's okay to say that we want something out of this. We want to feel good usually. Yeah. That's what works. Well, do you have any words of wisdom or calls to action? Anything you'd like to say to the audience listening? You know, I just, all I would say is the Conservancy is part of this community and 
I, I think it's a good part of this community, and I think most people would agree with that if they you know, were able to look in and see what part of it fits with them and, and, and join us. You mm-hmm. know, join us. Join us for $10. Join us for $1. Just join us. I think it's important. And, and I guess another last question is people that are listening outside of Petoskey and outside of this area, outside of the range of the five counties, what can they do if they're, you know, is I don't really know outside of here what is in place. I guess, you know, do you just you kind of do some research and... Yeah, there's land around. conservancies that service every county of okay. this state. So and, and outside of the state as well. Yeah, you okay. know, there's not many places that you couldn't find a conservancy that, that would work with you. Now, you know, their ability to focus on your region or whatever is always going to be a, a question. But no, you get on the web and, you know, there's great resources. Land Trust Alliance or here in Michigan, um, Heart of the Lakes Center for Land Conservation. They, they sort of serve as the clearinghouse for all the conservancies. So you can very quickly, two clicks, you can find okay. which conservancy you, cool. can, um, you can get with in your own awesome. area. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kieran. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. This was great, Solomon. Uh, great job. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Kieran for being on the show today. And really, thanks to all the staff at the Little Travers Conservancy, including the volunteers. I'd highly recommend to anyone out there listening, learn about what is available in your area and get involved, whether that's getting out and volunteering for a day, becoming a member of your local conservancy, or just getting outside to breathe some fresh air. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend, maybe a colleague or even a stranger. I think that if we can broaden our circles and educate our neighbors about what is important, then we'll all be able to live in a kinder and more understanding world. By the way, if you haven't already, consider checking out my Patreon page where I've created a video that describes how you can get involved in helping me get this podcast off the ground. Basically, Patreon is a website that allows creators like me to connect with the listeners and fans like you that want to support the work I'm doing. I already amazingly have four patrons, and my goal is to get to 20 by the end of the year, and I can do that with your help. You've been listening to the Saul Good Podcast. I'm Solomon Harvey. Have a Saul Good week. Peace. Sensation is a memory from my life.